It hasn't been preached out or played out from this uh, podium, but I want to preach on the subject, Picking a Partner. And I've got two reasons for doing that. One, I've just finished a series of studies in Placerita on family, and we looked at the subject of courtship. And I realize that I'm coming to chapel today. I want to preach out of the fullness and the richness of that series. Secondly, some of the students that come to Placerita tell me that there's a money-back guarantee here, that if there's no ring by spring, uh, you get your fees back. Uh, so I think uh, it's on my heart, and by the sound of it, it's certainly on your heart. Um, and I want to try and focus your, your attention on that subject in a biblical way. So will you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I just want to read one verse that will act as a springboard and a launching pad for what I want to say on this subject. Now, when I preach this at Placerita, I preached it over the morning service and the evening service, so I'm really going to have to give a condensed version. But I trust I'll do justice, one, to the sermon I preached, and more importantly, to the text I want to handle. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and I want to read verse 39. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is dealing with a host of questions that uh, the Corinthians have um, posed to him about marriage, about singleness, about being married to an unbeliever. And uh, there's a multitude and a complexity of questions that they ask him. And then dealing with um, the widow, he says in verse 39 of chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, The wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth. But if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will. Only in the Lord. She is at liberty to be married to whom she will, but only in the Lord. I want to take that specific advice to a widow and make a general application to those that are single and desiring a partner for life. Eugene Peterson has a contemporary paraphrase of the New Testament called The Message. And here's how he renders this verse. A wife must stay with her husband as long as he lives. If he dies, she is free to marry anyone she chooses. She will, of course, want to marry a believer and have the blessing of the Master. I like that. She will, of course, want to marry a believer and have the blessing of the Master. A reporter investigating the citrus industry in Florida went into a shed and he saw a man sorting oranges. And as the oranges came tumbling down the conveyor belt, the man went to work, putting the large oranges into large holes, putting the small oranges into small holes, and putting the bruised oranges into another hole. And the reporter watched this man perform his incredibly tedious and boring job until he couldn't stand it any longer. Finally, he asked the man, doesn't it get to you? I mean, how can you stand putting these oranges into these holes all day long? To which the man replied, you don't know the half of it. From the time I come in until the time I leave, it's decisions, decisions, decisions. And I think we can all fit into this man's shoes. For while life was not a choice for you nor for me, the living of life is full of choices, multiplied and complex. And the path we all travel intersects many times with the crossroads of choice and winds up often in the dead end of decision. To be 
or not to be is a question we are frequently asked to answer. And the practicality and the perplexity of this issue of decision-making is brought home to us in a forceful way when it comes to the picking of a partner. When it comes to what I might call or entitle my sermon, the decision you live with. The decision you live with. Because it doesn't get much more practical or substantial than deciding to live with someone till death do you part. Next to the choice we make of Christ, our Savior and Lord, the biggest choice we will ever have to face is the person we want to marry. It will affect our lives more intimately and more lastingly than any other. It's a division one decision. It's a major league choice. And in preparing this sermon, I came across the findings of a man who had been dealing with marriage counseling situations for over 20 or 30 years. And he came to this conclusion, and I quote him, Here is a startling fact. The selection you make of a marriage partner may well have more to do with the quality of your marriage than anything you do after getting married. Think about it. The selection you make of the partner may well have to do with the quality of your marriage more than anything you do after marriage. Remember this morning, young people, you get one shot at it. And if you aim wrongly, you'll end up wounding yourself deeply. It's not only the case that you may, must find the right one, you must avoid the wrong ones. The name of John Wesley is revered and honored. His wife's name was Molly. And on her gravestone in Camberwell Churchyard, she is described, I quote, as a woman of exemplary piety, a tender parent and a sincere friend. And yet, Wesley's biographer adds, she was one of the worst wives of whom one could ever read. She darkened 30 years of Wesley's life by her intolerable jealousy, her malicious and violent temper. What could have brought the greatest happiness brought the deepest misery. Marriage, romance, courtship, a life spent in commitment to each other can bring the greatest of joys, but it can bring the deepest of sorrows. And it brings before us the poignance of choosing the right partner for life. You know the short story? He said to her, Will you marry me? She said to him, No, and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> Two big tears were floating down the river of time. They began to engage in conversation. Said the first tear, I am the tear of the girl who lost her boyfriend to another girl. Don't feel so badly, consoled the other tear. I am the tear of the girl who got him. <laughs> and so we're faced with the complexity and we're faced with the poignance of, of this decision. And I want to take you to this text. And I want to encourage you through the advice that Paul gives to widows specifically, but I believe it has a general application to you. To you that are seeking a partner for life. To you that have yet to make the decision you're going to live with. Now there are three things I want to bring from the text. And I want to really concentrate on the latter two. I would like to think that the first point is a given here. The first thought that we'll consider is something you'll accept without equivocation and without question. 
And the first thing this text brings before you and me is the partner it identifies. Marry only in the Lord. The partner it identifies in the Lord is a tremendous New Testament phrase. And it speaks of being brought into union with Christ. It speaks of being placed in Christ by grace through faith. It is the transfer and the transformation that takes place in the heart and life of the repentant sinner. And so the point is here, marry in the Lord. The partner is clearly identified. It is someone who has been placed in Christ. It is someone whose heart has been touched by the grace of God, whose life and character is being transformed by the love of God. And so plain and simple, your partner has got to be a Christian. Never mind their face. Measure their heart. Do they love the Lord? Do they know the Lord? Are they in union with Him? Are they placed in Christ? Now, I know you've got certain characteristics and features that you intend to see in your future partner, and that's fine. But above and beyond that, your choice must be of a man or a woman who loves the Lord Jesus. It says of Rufus in Romans 16, verse 13, the New American Standard Version puts it like this, that Rufus was a choice man in the Lord. That's what you want. Yes, you want that choice characteristic or that choice feature, but above those choice characteristics and those chosen features that you're looking in your partner, they've got to be in the Lord. You want them to be a choice man in the Lord. You want her to be a choice woman in the Lord. And that's the ground rule. It's a non-negotiable. It's a must. You're not to marry an unbeliever. That is written in the granite of God's unchanging truth. And you don't break God's law. You break yourself against law, God's law. And so to avoid a life of heartache, a life where you will know the chastisement of God because of the decision you've made in rebellion to His revealed will, make sure that your partner is a believer. But I want to take that a step further just quickly. It's not just any professing Tom, Dick, or Harry. It's a substantial believer. It's someone you are sure is in the Lord. Because you won't be the first to wake up some morning and your boyfriend, who's now your husband, is a spiritual deadbeat. Or your girlfriend, who now is your wife, is shown for the hypocrisy. And for the lack of integrity that she hid from you during the courtship. And so it's vital that you take biblical standards and biblical tests and you measure each other against those standards to make sure that they're in the Lord. And 1 John gives you those practical standards, those measurements of someone's heart in love with the Lord Jesus. Better single than in a wrong marriage. And don't settle for the next best thing or a second-rate marriage. That's not the way to go. Don't lower your standards simply to meet yours or others' high hopes for marriage. The partner this text identifies is in the Lord. They are in Christ. 
They have a deep love for the Lord Jesus Christ. The fruit of the Spirit is evident. The marks of the Christian life are, are transparent and apparent and there for all to see. And you need to be seeing them. If you can't see them, back off. Take a second look. Take a deep breath and think again. Because you want to marry in the Lord. Better stay single. Do you know, when you read the account of Genesis 24, 25 of Isaac, you'll realize that at the age of 40, he was still not married. That condition is enough to cause many cardiac arrest. One woman desperate at 35 prayed each night, Lord, it's not just for me. Please send my mother-in-law or my mother to son-in-law. And Isaac was a suitable suitor. He was the son of Abraham. He was of good stock. He was a family. He was from a family who was socially respected and financially solid. He had a deep religious faith. He had a healthy respect for his family. But why was Isaac at 40 still single? Do you know why? Because he chose to be. There was no woman in the area that he considered suitable to be his bride. The religious and moral convictions of those who lived in the area did not tolerate with his religious or moral convictions. They were not part of their life and therefore they could never be part of his life. And so it's, it's a given, but it, 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 we need to be reminded. And as Peter encourages the believers, I want to put you in remembrance of these things. That this text clearly identifies that your partner's got to be a believer. Not just someone who professes Christ, but you can be sure they possess Christ. When a charming single woman was asked why she never married, she replied, I refuse to get married on scriptural grounds. What scripture, her friends asked? Well, First Thessalonians 4.13, I will not have you ignorant brethren. Well, as you look at him, and you see signs of ignorance, and you see signs of inconsistency and a lack of maturity in Christ, you refuse Him on spiritual and on scriptural grounds. Because as you make the decision you're going to live with, it's got to be in the Lord. It's got to be a believer. Because this text identifies our partners. But I want to move on speedily and to the more practical and more substantial element of this message. And and I don't want to con not only want to consider the partner it identifies, I want you to consider the process it clarifies. The process it clarifies only in the Lord. The phrase in the Lord is not static. It's mobile. This phrase stretches and runs beyond the thought of becoming a Christian to being a Christian. It takes in the thought of justification and progressive sanctification. It's not just a position in the Lord. It's a process. It's a lifestyle. It's a behavior pattern. Philippians 4 verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. So being in the Lord is an always thing. Being in the Lord is not just the moment of faith and the act of justification. It is the process of sanctification as having received the Lord Jesus Christ, you now walk in Him. It's an ongoing experience at the developing relationship. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in verse 1, we read this furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you have received of us how you ought to walk and to please God, so would you abound more and more. To be in the Lord is to walk and please God. 
It's a process as well as a position. And so this text takes us beyond the thought of just looking for a Christian to looking for a Christian in God's will. Making a decision about your partner, the decision you're going to live with, a decision which pleases God. That's very important. God has a will. And God has a design for our lives. That's a tremendous thought. As I've already touched on this morning, if you'd have asked me a year ago, sitting, listening to the young people sing and listening to the president preach, will I ever be behind this pulpit? I would have said in amazement, no. But you know, God has designs and purposes for us, and that, that's what makes life exciting. And that's what makes life purposeful. And you and I have a responsibility and an obligation to discern what God's will and purpose is for you and for me. We've got to trust in the Lord. And we've not got to lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge Him and He's going to direct our paths. And that certainly includes the partner that He intends for you and the partner that He had intended for me. Life is not a series of chance happenings. It's not a runaway train with nobody at the, the helm. But life is running along the track of God's good purpose. Ephesians 1 verse 11 tells us that God is working all things after the counsel of His own will. God worketh in you to do and to will His good pleasure. The prophet Jeremiah says, God speaks through the prophet and says, I know the plans I have for you, saith the Lord. God's good plans and purposes. And even in the offer and promise of guidance in the Bible, which is very clear, God has certainly got a purpose for us which He wants to lead us to and guide us to. God will not leave you whistling in the dark. And you've got to believe that in response to your desire for a spouse or your wish for a partner. You don't have to go under the side of the hill here and pick a daisy and pick each paddle off and go, He loves me, He loves me not, He loves me, He loves me not, and whatever way it all finishes up, that's what you base your decision on. No, it can be more purposeful and definite and confident than that. And so for the time that remains, I want to identify from this passage, 1 Corinthians 7, some principles that will help you in determining God's will. Because this text brings a partner before us and it brings a process before us. In the Lord, a Christian. In the Lord, a Christian. In God's design and desire for your life. If you're taking notes, here, here's the first principle I want you to understand in this process of determining God's purpose in the decision you're going to live with. First of all, guidance is born out of a relationship with Jesus Christ. To me, this takes the heat out of the issue of God's will. It takes the perplexity and the worry that often binds our heart and blinds our minds when we go about setting a course to determine God's will. Because God's will is in the Lord. God's will essentially and centrally is found in a person. It's found in a relationship. I think as evangelical Christians, we fall prey to the thought that Guidance comes through a set of dead rules or a wooden formula. Step one, step two, step three, make your decision. 
There's a certain element of that. But at the ground and at the, the foundational level, the will of God is determined by a living connection with Jesus Christ. Guidance comes through simply and essentially living out the Christian life. Guidance is simply one part of Christ's whole ministry in your life and in mine. The Lord is my shepherd, says David, I shall not want. I shall not want for rest. He leads me beside the still waters. I shall not want for contentment. He makes me lie down in green pastures. And I shall not want for guidance. For He leads me along the right paths. And I shall not lack protection because His rod and His staff, they comfort me. And I shall not lack supply because He spreads a table before me and my cup overflows. And God's guidance to us is simply one part of Christ's whole ministry. And so often we take guidance and we set it over here and Christ is over there. My friend, essentially and centrally this morning, you will be able to determine God's will by living out your Christian life. By that daily, continual, intimate outworking of the Christ who lives in you, the hope of glory. Romans 12. I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And renew your mind and open your heart to Christ. And in that you will prove what the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God is. How do you prove God's will? You do it by an open heart and a mind that is open to the indwelling Christ. I think that's so helpful. And you, as we go on to maybe some of the, the more wooden aspects of, of, of principles for guidance, I want you to understand that essentially at its foundation, guidance is found and is born out of a relationship to Jesus Christ. I don't know what has happened to you when you've got lost. But at times when we've got lost in the little back roads of Ireland, uh, people have come to our rescue in two ways. We either wind down the, the passenger window or the driver's window and someone gives us instructions, you know. Go a mile along this road, you'll go over a humpback bridge, take a right and then go along that for half a mile, take a left. And the time, you know, you're nodding your head and, and you wind up the window and you head off down the road and you've half forgot all the instructions that he's gave you. So you're halfway there and you stop again, you've got to get more instructions. And there's been my experience also that in times I've, I've met that particularly kind person who has said, you know, I live out there. In fact, I'm going that way. And they jump in the car and there they are with you in a living dialogue taking you to where you need to go. And uh, guidance is not a wooden formula or a set of instructions as it is more a living dialogue with the Christ who has come on board. And He knows where we need to go because remember, He is the one who is, who was, who is to come. You and I worry about the future. We consider, you know, what lies around the corner? What is over the hill? He lives there. And if you rest on Him and listen to Him and walk with Him, you'll get there. You'll get there. And so the first principle of guidance that comes out of this text and out of this passage is that guidance is born out of a relationship with Christ. Secondly, guidance is found in reading and applying Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 7, as Paul wrestles with all these questions, he says in verse 10, And unto the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. 
the Corinthians were receiving Scripture, the mandated revelation of God through the Apostle as a means of guidance. And God wants to light up the horizon of their thinking and wants to take away the puzzlement of your heart through the light of Scripture. Psalm 119, verse 105, it is a light onto our path and a lamp onto our feet. And as you seek to make this decision you're going to live with, then you've got to apply yourself to a diligent and correct study and application of the Word of God. Where will you hear God's voice? God has spoken in these last days by His Son. Hebrews 1, verse 1 to 2. God's will is wrapped up in God's Word. In Mark 3, verse 33, the Lord's family come to Him and they call Him to come home and He says, you know, He who is my brother, he who is my sister, he who is my mother is the one who does the will of God. When you go to the other synoptic gospel, Luke 8 and verse 21, it's the same incident, but the writer tells us that he says it is he that does the word of God. And we see immediately a connection between the will of God and the word of God in Mark 3, 35 and Luke 8, 21. God's will is wrapped up in God's word. There is wisdom to be found in God's truth. And we will be helped by, one, the binding precepts of God's Word, telling us clearly what we can do and what we can't do. And then as we face the more subjective areas of life and its choices, we not only have the binding precepts of God's Word, we have the deciding principles of God's Word. Where the Word of God gives us working principles we can apply in the gray areas and the shaded aspects of life. And I encourage you as young people to be in the Word. To be in the Word personally as we were encouraged in the worship time. And if you're to be guided by God's Word, then you'll need to be careful you're not vandalizing it. That you know how to handle God's Word accurately. You know how to divide God's Word of truth. You know, wonderful things in the Bible we see, most of them put there by you and by me. We need to be careful in how we approach Scripture. And how we deal with it. And therefore we need to be correct in our approach and not vandalize it. And we mustn't play biblical roulette. You know, when we come up against a major decision in life, there's been a pattern of inconsistency. Staggered times with the Lord. And then we start playing biblical roulette. We start turning the pages just to find a verse that suits us. And then we run off to make shipwreck of our lives on the basis of a verse and a passage that we ripped out of its context or that was forced out of an inconsistent pattern of worship and devotion to Christ. Guidance is found and born out in a relationship with Christ. It's found in reading and applying Scripture. Guidance is realized by looking up more than looking out. Looking up more than looking out. God, I believe, not only wants us to view our potential partner through the lens of Scripture, but also through prayer. Specific prayer sensitizes our inner spirit to God, giving us a resolve to wait and allow God to lead us. Not to run off half-cocked, to make one of the most important decisions in our life. But out of deep love for Christ, out of time spent in the Word, and allowing our hearts to be molded and melted and shaped by the Spirit of God through prayer, we then can make a conscious and a confident decision. It's interesting, in this passage, Paul talks about the, the, the husband and wife having a specific time of fasting and prayer. 
In 1 Peter 3 verse 7, the, the, the couples are encouraged to be careful they don't hinder their prayer life by certain actions within the relationship. And what we see is that prayer is part of marriage. And if it's part of marriage, it ought to be part of courtship. It's central to discerning God's will. In Colossians Chapter 1 and verse 9, Paul says, For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and desire that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will. He's praying that the Colossians might know God's will. Prayer is not getting your will done in heaven as much as it's getting God's will done on earth. It's an alignment of our desires to His design. And when that alignment comes, bingo, the answer can come and the decision can be made with confidence. But prayerlessness is the life of the maverick. Prayer is the evidence that you wish God, you do not wish God to hold the reins of your life. But prayer is the token of faith that says to God, I want you to lead and to direct. Prayer gives you a leg up onto the saddle of God's will. It sifts our motives. It is the sorting office of our desires it is a sign that we are truly trusting Him and depending upon Him in all areas of our decision. It's interesting when you come to the sacred ground of Gethsemane and find the Lord Jesus Christ in His first petition, He refers to His human will and His Father's will. Possible may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. My will, your will, the human will, the divine will. And yet in the second prayer, the dichotomy between the two wills has disappeared, vanished, evaporated. My Father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away from me, then may your will be done. Why the difference? What had happened? Well, in the crucible of agonizing prayer, he had received afresh the revelation of his Father's will for him, and submissively he had yielded and merged his human will with his Father's will. And that's what needs to happen in your life and my life as we seek the partner that God has designed for us. Our desire and his design needs to be aligned through prayer if we're to move forward confidently. And so I encourage you to trust God and to answer prayer and to seek a partner prayerfully. Trust God to answer prayer and thank Him for unanswered prayer. Maybe He didn't answer that prayer, that situation, that circumstance, that boy or that girl. It just didn't come about the way you maybe had hoped. But thank Him when He answers and thank Him when He doesn't. I'm reminded of Dr. Howard Hendricks who tells us of the time when he was a young man before he was married. And he was aware that certain mothers had set their cap on him on behalf of their daughters. And one mother even said to him one day, Howard, I just want you to know that I'm praying that you will be my son-in-law. Dr. Hendricks always stops at that point in the story and solemnly says, Have you ever thanked God for unanswered prayer? <laughs> Guidance comes through prayer. It comes through the Word. It comes through a living relationship with Jesus Christ. Guidance is about God's best for you. Guidance, fourthly, is about God's best for you. God's will is based upon His character. 
And God's character is good and perfect. And it is no wonder in Romans 12 verse 2, we're told that his will for us is good and perfect. And when Paul gives these Corinthians advice, he says this in verse 7 of chapter 7, For I would that all men were as myself, but every man hath his proper gift of God. One after this manner and another after that. What he's saying is that, you know, for some of us, singleness is what God chooses. For some of us, marriage is what's best. But whatever God chooses, whatever his perfect gift is, it's good and it's perfect. Because God's guidance and God's will is based on God's best intention for you and for me. And I think that's important. Why do I say that? Because in the matter of choosing a bride or a groom, you must seek quality. In the discerning of God's will regarding a partner for your life, concentrate on character. Because God's will and His purposes are based on His character. And that's a great temptation. Look for quality. Look for character. Forget beauty. It's skin deep. Beauty is vain. But a woman that fears the Lord, she is to be praised. When you read passages on marriage and relationships in Scripture, Proverbs 31, 1 Timothy 2, Ephesians 5, 1 Peter 3, you'll realize that God is concentrating on the character. Speaking to the women, the the Scripture says, you know, let your adorning not be of the outer, but the inner. Not of the body, but the spirit. You're not to concentrate on charisma, but character. You're not to measure the curvature, but the stature. You're stupid and idiotic to concentrate on outer beauty. It's vain. You need to concentrate on the character and the quality of life of the partner you seek because that is God's intention. God seeks His best for you. And His will is based on His character. The couple was on the verge of another argument and the husband in exasperation said, I can't understand why God made you so pretty but so stupid. The wife replied, that's simple. He made me so pretty so that you would marry me and he made me so stupid so that I would marry you. (laughs) Well, a fixation with beauty, a fixation with the body is a fatal attraction. A fixation with beauty and the body is a fatal attraction. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. We'll all find our own level there. But in seeking your partner for life and in you wanted to be in God's will, in the Lord, a Christian in the Lord, a Christian that pleases God, you will concentrate on character. Good looks, good jobs from a good family. Be careful. That kind of thought might provoke a romantic fantasy where he pulls up outside your door in his Corvette and he drives you off into the sunset. That's Hollywood. That's the surreal world of the movies. In fact, that's the world and that's the flesh. And that's the devil. God give you blinkers to the size of his nose or the shape of her waistline. Because God in his desire for you desires the best and it's based on his character and therefore your decision ought to be based on character and quality. 
This is where Samson took the bullet. In Judges 14, 1-3, read it for yourself because time's going. You'll realize he sees a woman who's not of his own people and he desires her simply on physical attraction, simply on what he sees on the surface. That's, what Swindle, that's why Swindle calls him the he-man with a she-weakness. And that was true. And I want you to know this, long before they put his eyes out, he was blind. Long before they put his eyes out, he was already blind. And I think that's the irony of God's judgment in Samson's life. It was as if God was saying, Samson, they put your eyes out because they were no use to you. You only looked on the surface, you only looked on the outer man, and you never looked for what was penetrating and deep and qualitative and substantial and, and, and what I would desire for you. And so as you seek God's guidance, let it be born out of a relationship with Christ. Look for your partner through the lens of Scripture and out of a heart that has been molded and shaped in agonizing prayer. And as you look, look for quality and character because that's what God intends for you. Fifthly, guidance applies reason to life's unfolding circumstances. Guidance applies reason to life's unfolding circumstances. You cannot miss the underline of Paul when it comes to the gift of singleness because Paul advises them in, in the context of certain circumstances that they ought to consider seriously perhaps staying single as he was. He speaks of a present distress. And it seems there were circumstances then of persecution opposition against the church. And in the light of those circumstances, Paul says it would be wise in applying reason to life's unfolding circumstances to stay as you are at the moment. And speaking of marrying in the context of burning, he's not saying we marry simply to be sexually gratified. He's saying that if you have come to the point where there is substantial ground for a relationship and you're moving towards marriage, be careful. Take into consider the circumstances and your nature. Be reasonable. Be sensible. Don't be engaged for long. Because you open yourself up to greater temptation. And as you read this 7th chapter of 1 Corinthians, you can see in answering these questions about marriage and courtship, Paul doesn't leave out reason. It was Mel Trotter, the founder of the Navigators, that said, when God gave us a brain, He gave us 95% of His will. And you need to be careful not to discount the wise use of your mind in determining the unfolding circumstances of life. Be sensible and be observant. Yes, God is working all things after the counsel of His own will, but you have to apply your reason and open your eyes and open your heart to what God is doing. This thing just doesn't happen automatically. You've got to read the road. I remember a couple of years ago when I was staying with my wife's uh, mum and dad in Glasgow in Scotland, it came on the evening news of a, a man from Pakistan who had been holidaying in Scotland and there are not too many vehicles in Scotland that have cruise control, but this particular vehicle that he had hired had cruise control. That's not a thing that we're used to in Britain. And so this man took this uh, vehicle onto the highway and uh, started tinkering about with the cruise control. 
And so he got up to the particular speed he wanted to travel at. He put on the cruise control and then he took his hand off the steering wheel. He thought that cruise control was automatic pilot and this thing would drive by itself. And he was off the motorway and over the ditch and the car was rode off, but thankfully his life was saved. And I think sometimes we have that view of God's approach to life that, you know, we approach life on automatic pilot. God is working all things together for our good and he's working all things after the counsel of his own will. So that girl's going to come and she's going to land in my lap or that boy's going to come and he's going to uh, accept me with, with open arms. We've got to approach this spiritually and we've got to approach it sensibly. There's nothing occurs at random in God's world. Nothing per chance. God controls every event and every circumstance and not one stray molecule operates outside His will and purpose in the planet and in the earth. Everything that happens is loaded with meaning and you should apply your reason and the circumstances of life and the convergence of friendships and the makeup of events as a means of determining God's purpose and plan for you. And as you do that, can I say something? Be sensible. In applying your mind to understanding the circumstances, don't be looking for the bizarre or the idiotic. You know, Lord, if she walks into the classroom and she's got one red sock on and one blue sock on, I'll take it as a sign for you, from you. She's for me. You know, look, look sensibly and, and try and understand life just in its general pattern. When you go into Genesis 24, you'll realize that Abraham's servant, Eliezer, was sent out to find a bride for Isaac. And when he comes to a well, he, he lays this before the Lord. He says, Lord, if, if, if a girl comes and she, she draws from the well and she offers me a drink and offers the camels a drink, I'll take that as a sign. And, and you know, that was a very reasonable and sensible request because it was an arduous task to draw well, to draw water from the well. Camels could drink up to a hundred gallons and so for her to, to quench and slake the thirst of the camel was an arduous task and it, it indicated and it revealed the heart of a girl who was kind and generous and hardworking and she had deep character. And so there was there was a reason in his request. He was approaching it sensibly. And as you ask the Lord to, to bring about circumstances to help you understand, is it he or is it she? Be sensible. Don't be like the guy who was walking down the road one day in total confusion as to where the Lord was taking him. He had, he had just shared with his pastor that he had this desire to go into the work, go into the ministry, but he just wasn't sure where the Lord was taking him. And so he's walking down the road and he looked at this billboard and on the billboard was this new chocolate that had come onto the market. And this chocolate was, was bedacked in Brazil nuts. And so he walks past it and down the road, it's if the light comes on, Brazil! The Lord's telling me I need to go to Brazil. And so he goes running back to the pastor and he says, you know, pastor... The question has been answered. My confusion is gone. The Lord is telling me to go to Brazil. And he relates the story. And the pastor says, well, that's fine and good. But he says, you can thank God it wasn't a Mars bar. <laughs> Be sensible. Be reasonable. And in your approach to discerning God's will. Be spiritual as we close. Be sensible and Be spiritual as you apply your mind to life's unfolding circumstances. 
It's interesting to me that when you read in 1 Samuel 23, verse 7 and 14, that Saul is hounding David. Saul is hounding David. And David is in, is in a town, and, and that town is walled, and there's only one or two ways out. And, and the news gets to Saul, and, 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 and uh, Saul says, he's been cornered. God has delivered him to me. God has delivered David up to me. And yet when Saul goes hunting for David, David escapes and the Word of God says that the Lord did not deliver David into Saul's hands. Now think about it. Saul believed that God was delivering David into God's hands in the light of the circumstances. But it's clear from the text that God was not delivering David into Saul's hands. Do you know where Saul was making a mistake? Because Saul was an, an, an unspiritual man. He was hunting David out of a selfish motive. Saul's life was out of touch with God. And when your life is out of touch with God and you're not spiritual and devoted to Jesus Christ, it is in that moment you're going to read the wrong reading into any given circumstance and you're going to make shipwreck of your relationship and make a mess of your life. And so as you apply your reason to life's unfolding these circumstances, be sensible. And be spiritual. I don't have time to speak about the third aspect. It was simply the person, this text, magnifies the Lord. The Lord. And that brings us to consider the fact that as you and I set about making choices in our life, we've got to ask ourselves, what is motivating us? What is driving us? Am I being driven with a deep desire to glorify God? in this relationship? Have I got a deep desire to establish a marriage which is based on a biblical premise to develop a relationship and to raise children which will rebound to the glory of God? You know, we marry for all sorts of reasons. Sometimes we marry for ourselves or we marry for others. But do we ever marry for Him in the Lord? Desiring a marriage, desiring a courtship, desiring a family which glorifies and magnifies the Lord Jesus. And can I say if that is your desire then there's a wonderful truth that when God is greatly glorified, man is deeply satisfied. Your marriage will be satisfying if at its base is a driven passion to see Jesus exalted and to see God glorified. Decisions, decisions, decisions. Our entrance into life was a choice that none of us made. But as we live out our lives, we are faced with choices which are multiplied and complex. None greater than the choosing of a partner, the decision you will live with. Be clear on the partner. Work through the process and do it all in the light of the desire to glorify the person. Amen.